It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Fresh, fun. It's the Guy Benson Show with Guy Benson. It is Monday, October the 4th, 2021. It's a brand new week here on the Guy Benson Show. Thank you so much for tuning in Monday through Friday, 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern Time and around the clock on demand for free on the podcast, which is available after each show. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. All the details are right there. FoxNewsPodcast.com, an option as well for the podcast or wherever you get your podcasts. We, of course, always recommend listening live as the show airs, because it's a busy time of day. As we begin today's show, let me tell you where we are headed in terms of guests. Relatively light show guest-wise today, but I'm excited for both of them. Britt Hume will join us in the next hour. I have a number of things to ask him about, including his thoughts and reflections on the 25th anniversary of Fox News Channel this week. He's been here for virtually all of it, and I can't wait to pick his brain. And then in our final hour, Howie Kurtz, host of Media Buzz, will be here talking about, yes, the 25th year anniversary for Fox, but also some other media-related controversies of which there is never a shortage in this town and up in New York. The media, in many ways, as bad as ever. And I don't say that lightly. And I have one particular set of examples that I want to run past Howie, and I'm curious to get his take. That's coming up in our final hour here today. Fox News alert as we begin the program. The case count for coronavirus is 43.6 million nationwide. Now, that's all in since the beginning of the pandemic, but we know that it's also quite low. The estimates are 150, 160 million, somewhere in that ballpark, which goes to the point about natural immunity, which is pretty widespread at this point. Vaccine plus natural immunity, I've seen estimates that 80 to 85 percent of the country is covered by one, if not both of those categories of immunity. That should matter when we're thinking about public policies. And on that front and some of the comments from Dr. Fauci that he's been making, I saw he weighed in on Christmas this year. He had to walk that back today. We'll get into all of that in our second hour coming up. The death toll has now blown past 700,000 in this country. These are COVID deaths, 701,326. The dramatic machinations on Wall Street and the roller coaster ride just continue. A big down day. Now, the Dow is down 318 points at this hour. NASDAQ's also down. So it's been a bumpy ride recently. It's sort of, it feels like a, a Jekyll and Hyde situation. With some days, everything shoots way up. And the next day, a corresponding dip. And we are in the red today. We'll keep an eye on the Dow which is trading just over 34,000 at this hour. Now, let's see, where did we leave off last week? It was Friday. 
Now, I was doing the show from Omaha, Nebraska. More on that later. And President Biden was bringing the prestige and power of the presidency to Capitol Hill to lobby members of his party on the Build Back Better, or whatever they want to call it, agenda. And we talked about the infrastructure bill, the bipartisan one, and a lot of the members wanted to vote on that. They'd been promised to vote last week from Nancy Pelosi. The progressives were dead set against that proposition. They were angry about it. They had been told earlier by Pelosi for weeks and weeks, really months, that there wouldn't be a vote on the infrastructure bill, the bipartisan one, until and unless there had been a big Democrat-only spending bill through reconciliation jammed through first. That is what the progressives said was still their position. They said, you know, Pelosi made this pledge to us. And in fairness, she did. She was on their side until she wasn't. Then she shifted gears, recognized what Manchin was up to, what Cinema was up to, saw that the whole thing could potentially peter out. They could argue amongst themselves forever. So why not pass part of the president's agenda, which would be pretty easy to do if the Democrats all got united because a number of Republicans were going to support that infrastructure bill. But it didn't happen. All right, on Thursday, last Thursday, we were wondering if it would happen or if Pelosi would have to punt. She punted into Friday. Then there was all sorts of talk earlier in the day on Friday. Oh, there's momentum. They're getting closer. Here comes the president to Capitol Hill. Were they going to actually pull this rabbit out of a hat? And despite all of that excitement in the press in particular, they were so excited. Biden's coming. What does this mean? Well, it fell through. It all fell apart. Because as we were going off the air on Friday, we were starting to get sort of a readout that was trickling in from various sources in the press about what did and did not happen in that big meeting from Biden. And the finger pointing and the recriminations have continued over the weekend because now they've moved the deadline to do this stuff to the end of October. Right. Initially, it was supposed to be last Monday. Then it was moved to last Thursday. Then it was moved to last Friday. Then it looked like they might have a breakthrough, although that was all based on speculation. And now all of a sudden Halloween is the date that Speaker Pelosi has penciled in as a resolution date. And I see Chuck Schumer saying we don't want this to take weeks. We want this to take days. I think that they are just casting about in the wilderness right now. They have no idea what's going on because Biden showed up and did basically nothing. In some ways, he may have hurt the situation among Democrats. Now, you might recall on Friday's show, we had Congressman Fitzpatrick on, Republican from Pennsylvania, one of the more moderate Republicans, Problem Solvers Caucus. He's in favor of the bipartisan infrastructure bill, but he didn't really know what was coming. He did ask the question sort of rhetorically, and I thought it was a good point, and many other analysts had also come to this conclusion – He said, would they really be sending Biden up to Capitol Hill in order for in order for this thing to fail? Would they really send the president with all the excitement and, you know, the uh, ballyhooed trip down Pennsylvania Avenue with cameras in tow and breathless speculation? Would they go through all of that, the optics of it, build up the expectations the way they had been doing if they didn't have it almost in the bag, if not in the bag? 
that he would come up, rah, rah, rally the troops, united front. We're going to go ahead and vote, and we're going to put our differences aside on this because we trust each other, and we're going to get reconciliation done next. I thought that was a fair question to raise because to me, a competent political organization, a competent political operation, a competent White House would not put the president out there on a limb only to wither out there on a vine and have nothing really happen after the the prestige and the power is very publicly wielded in this way. And yet, if we're learning anything about Joe Biden, his administration, competence is not really their thing. I know that's how they sold themselves. We'll be the adults in the room. Oh, the adults are back in charge. We'll be competent. We'll unite the country. We'll restore norms. How's that all going? They're not even uniting their party, let alone the country. He's making almost no effort to unite the country. He has no interest in talking to Republicans. The competence, whether it's Afghanistan or the border or now this, I think any remaining confidence has been severely shaken. And there's not a sense that the adults are running anything. So after Biden left, everyone sort of looked around saying, "Okay, what just happened? The answer, in short, was nothing. Politico reported this over the weekend. Here's a quote. The fact that the president came to the Hill and whipped against his own bill is the strangest thing I've ever seen. That late night observation was just one of many we heard. This is Politico from frustrated lawmakers and senior aides stunned by what happened in the House on Friday. What senior Dems thought was going to happen, President Joe Biden was come to the Hill, support Speaker Nancy Pelosi's efforts to rally the party behind his historic $1.2 trillion bipartisan infrastructure plan ahead of a Friday vote. But what ended up happening instead, Biden told them he wanted to hold off on infrastructure until there was a reconciliation deal, even if that means delaying the vote for several more days or even weeks. Biden's move put Pelosi in a tough spot. So clearly Pelosi was not expecting this. What the leadership was expecting was for Joe to roll in and say, all right, come on, man. Here we go, gang. Here's the deal. And sort of lay down the law. I'm the president. I'm the leader of the party. This is a signature accomplishment that I want. It is there for the taking. All we have to do is pass it. We will get reconciliation done next, I promise. But we are doing infrastructure. Listen to Pelosi. We're doing it. Let's have the vote. And personally lobby to make it happen. In fact, he did the opposite. He came and said, yeah, well, it doesn't really matter when it happens. I'd like to see it happen. This is his own bill that he negotiated with Republicans and Democrats. Let's just wait on that. It might take weeks. We'll get around to it. Some progressive Democrats, according to Politico, suggested to their colleagues that the White House, at their most senior levels of the White House, gave them a green light to tank the infrastructure vote if Pelosi went ahead with it. And Biden didn't really disabuse anyone of that, right, of that perception. So Pelosi and company appear to have been expecting Biden to show up and back them up and say, this is how we're going to do it. It's time to get in line. 
in this sequence for this reason. I'm the president, and if you want to cross me and the speaker, there's going to be a problem, and this whole thing could potentially collapse. We cannot let that happen. Instead, he was like noncommittal, unfocused, sort of pandered to both sides, and if anything, seemed to reinforce the notion among progressives that they were fully in the clear to keep resisting and fighting against the Pelosi plan, which is exactly what they did. They came out and said our demands are unchanged, and Pelosi had to not only move the bill and shift a vote off sort of indefinitely, she had to buy herself weeks because apparently the sides were not coming closer together after the president visited. They were being driven farther apart. Hell of a job by Grandpa Joe on Friday. Then moderates started putting out statements, furious, because they had been promised by Pelosi a vote last week. Then they realized, oh, wait, we're not going to get one because the progressives are refusing to blink. And now the leadership has blinked and there's no leadership at all on this from the president. So we saw a series of statements from House moderates, Kirsten Cinema. We'll talk more about her in a minute. She was being chased down by lunatics in the bathroom over the weekend. That's how her life is going right now. She put out a pretty scathing statement. Quote, I have never and would never agree to any bargain that would hold one piece of legislation hostage to another. She went on, Democratic leaders have made conflicting promises that could not be kept and have at times pretended that differences of opinion within our party did not exist, even when those disagreements were repeatedly made clear directly and publicly. So... To say that the Dems are in disarray, it feels more like absolute chaos. Don't take my word for it. Here's John Bresnahan, a D.C. journalist, on one of the morning shows, one of the Sunday shows yesterday, talking about what he's hearing from his sources in D.C. Cut 16. It's incredibly toxic right now. I had a, I had a chief of staff for a moderate, the... the um, House Democrat say, you know, the White House legislative affairs operation is just, you know, they don't know what they don't know what they're doing. They don't know what they're doing. I think that could apply to a lot of different people right now involved in this. Jonathan Carl from ABC News hearing similar things. This was uh, this week yesterday on ABC cut 17. There is increasing tension among moderate and progressive Democrats and a sense that the White House is falling short. As one Democratic lawmaker told ABC News, quote, most of us are at a loss for words. There was no plan, no strategy, no timing. No plan, no strategy, no timing, no leadership. Apparently from the president of the United States who decided to show up on Capitol Hill in this much anticipated big moment and deliver squat, nothing. They went backwards, and things have not improved over the weekend. There was an interesting little detail, by the way, that several reporters noted from people who were in the room. Biden gave his little spiel in front of the House Democrats, and then he opened it up for questions from his fellow Democrats. And when he said that, his aides intervened and shut it down and said, no, 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 no questions, and they shuffled him out. Isn't that interesting? They don't want him taking questions from the press, mostly Democrats, or from literal elected Democrats, and they avoid that scenario, Q&As, as often as possible. Now, he did take some questions today, 
And he said something that raised my eyebrows, which might explain why they don't want him taking questions very often. We'll get to that, the Kirsten Cinema harassment and the president's very tepid reaction to it and much more. I mean, if you enjoy seeing the White House and Speaker Pelosi and Leader Schumer sort of fighting amongst themselves with their own members, if you're popping your popcorn over Dems in disarray, then you're probably having a pretty fun few days. And there's a lot more that we need to address on that front. And we will do so as soon as we come back. It's the Guy Benson Show. Guy Benson will be right back. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, subscribe and listen to the Trey Gowdy Podcast. Former federal prosecutor and four-term U.S. congressman from South Carolina brings you a -a one-of-a-kind podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. It's the Guy Benson Show. We're back. Oh, enough. Oh, gosh. These were protesters, if you want to call them that, chasing around Democratic Senator Kirsten Sinema in Arizona. She teaches a course at Arizona State. They entered without authorization this building where she was teaching. They found her, and they chased her through the hallways. They followed her into the bathroom and filmed it. It's all on film. They posted it. This is an activist group called Lucha, which means fight in Spanish. There are these left-wing agitators. They followed her into the bathroom. You see her going into the stall for crying out loud. And this is what she was subjected to, cut 31. Sit down, we want to talk to you real quick. Want to talk to you real quick? Hi, actually, I am heading out. But um, right now is a real moment that our people need in order for us to be able to talk about what's really happening. We need a Build Back Better plan right now. We, we knocked on doors. We need solutions to the Build Back Better plan. We right, so now we're in the bathroom. And then as she leaves, you heard the chanting as well. I mean, it is so far over the line. Cinema has put out a scathing statement today in response. We will get you that when we come back. President Biden asked about it today. His response was astounding to me. We'll play you that sound on The Guy Benson Show. Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton with Row. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my <laughs> name is Chad. His name is Jonathan. But you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson. I'm Guy Benson. We're back. So we played you some of the audio of Senator Kirsten Cinema, Democrat from Arizona, being hounded at Arizona State University. She's an Arizona State lecturer. She's apparently taught a class there for a long time. These left-wing agitators found her, entered the building without permission, 
and then chased her, including into the bathroom. And they have it all on film. They posted it themselves. They're proud of this. A few of the people who chased her into the bathroom have put out basically statements on social media, totally unapologetic, saying, I've had people in my family deported. We have to do this for workers and for families and for immigrants and just justifying, justifying stalking a United States senator and chasing her into the bathroom on camera. As I said, you see her in the video entering the stall. Then there's the flush and she comes back out and she's washing her hands and they're berating her on camera. It's uh, it's extraordinary. And there's a few points to make about this, which I will in a second. But first, Cinema putting out a statement earlier today. Quote, yesterday, several individuals disrupted my class at Arizona State University after deceptively entering a lock secure building. These individuals filmed and publicly posted videos of my students without their permission, including footage taken of both my students and I using a restroom. In Arizona, we love the First Amendment. We know it's vital to our democracy. She writes a bit later, I will continue to engage with Arizonans with diverse viewpoints to help inform my work for Arizona. She also notes the activist group that engaged in yesterday's behavior is one that both my team and I have met with several times since I was elected. So part of the, this is me now, just a quick aside, part of the justification being claimed on the left, and there are people defending this, not just the actors themselves, the the activists who did this, but others on the left saying, well, she won't meet with anyone. She won't meet with them. What else are they supposed to do? Well, I would say not follow a senator with cameras into the bathroom. That's just one thought that I have. That is obviously too far. But according to cinema, they're lying. According to cinema, she and her team have met with this exact group while they are claiming that they have no other choice to get in touch with her other than these types of guerrilla, disgusting tactics. So in her statement, she goes out of her way to make clear that that is not the case. She goes on. This is Cinema's statement today. Yesterday's behavior was not legitimate protest. It is unacceptable for activist organizations to instruct their members to jeopardize themselves by engaging in in unlawful activities such as gaining entry to closed university buildings, disrupting learning environments, and filming students in a restroom. In the 19 years I've been teaching at ASU, I've been committed to creating a safe and intellectually challenging environment for my students. Yesterday, that environment was breached. My students were unfairly and unlawfully victimized. This is wholly inappropriate. It is the duty of elected leaders to avoid fostering an environment in which honestly held policy disagreements serve as the basis for vitriol, raising the temperature in political rhetoric and creating a permission structure for unacceptable behavior. So that's cinema. Obviously and correctly disturbed and angry about what happened yesterday. I know when you run for office, you expect people sometimes to heckle you or you'll get questions wherever you go. Sometimes people will put a camera in your face. I've never seen it before in the bathroom. That's a new one. And again, you've got people on the left out there on social media defending it beyond the activists who engage in this stuff themselves. I saw one CNN commentator said, well, you know, what's worse, getting confronted in a bathroom or having your family deported? 
I mean, where do you draw the line? If someone feels very personally aggrieved by an issue, you fill in the blank. Right? Guns, abortion, immigration, anything. This happens to be a spending bill. Stop the steal, right? If you're one of these people who believes in the conspiracy about the election being stolen and you fervently believe it, and now you have people arguing that if you believe something strongly enough, it's sort of kind of acceptable behavior to chase lawmakers into bathrooms. Is that a standard that anyone would actually abide by if it were them? I would love to know if a CNN contributor, for example, would be okay being confronted and filmed in a bathroom, a public restroom. And the people who are trying to justify or defend this stuff, they are literally defending stalking a U.S. senator and filming her without her permission in a public place that also happens to be a restroom while she's using the restroom. So Chuck Schumer has put out a statement, the Senate Majority Leader, which begins by talking about how much he values protest and free speech and also how much he values the immigrant community because these are apparently illegal immigration activists. So it, it appears, and I've seen some of the reporting, is that at least one of the people who chased a U.S. senator into the bathroom while filming her is an illegal immigrant, which is, I mean, quite a look. I guess there, there's a sense of total impunity if that's what you're going to engage in, that kind of behavior. And then Schumer gets around to saying, you know, this is uh, this is over the line. You shouldn't be filming someone in a bathroom. Thanks, Chuck. Biden was worse. Biden was asked about this because he finally took some questions today. Our colleague Peter Ducey asked him about it. And in Cut 34, listen to the substance and kind of the tone here. Fairly nonchalant from President Biden. Cut 34. Joe Manchin had people on kayaks show up to his boat. T.L. Adam, Senator Sinema last night was chased into a restroom. Do you think that those tactics are crossing a line? I don't think they're appropriate tactics, but it happens to everybody. From the, <laughs> the only people it doesn't happen to are people who have Secret Service standing around them. Um, so uh, it's, it's, it's part of the process. It's part of the process. A little chuckle in there from uh, Grandpa Joe. He starts saying, oh, it's not appropriate, which is about as weak a condemnation as you can think of. Not appropriate. Then a little laugh. It doesn't happen to people with Secret Service, i.e. him. Right? He's been protected by Secret Service for, gosh, since 2008, late 2008, when he was the nominee for vice president. So he has not dealt with a situation where this type of thing could happen to him in well over a decade. Rank-and-file senators and congresspeople don't have security, as we learned horrifically at the congressional baseball shooting a few years ago. It's leadership, and that's it. So he says, look, it's inappropriate, but it's part of the process. This happens to everyone, does it? In your 8,000 years in Washington, Senator, have you ever seen one of your colleagues filmed in the bathroom by foaming at the mouth, rabid activists demanding action, chanting, echoing in the bathroom and down the hallways while she's trying to teach a course at a university? This is not normal. 
right? This is the phrase they used to use during Trump. This is not normal. With their little hand clap emojis on social media. This is not normal. It's like, well, Mr. President, what do you think of a uh, Democratic member of the Senate being chased down and filmed in the bathroom by activists on the radical left? Well, it happens to everyone. (laughs) It's part of the process. Those precious, precious norms that he promised to protect or restore, this is a devolution of norms. And he doesn't seem too upset about it. And here's the thing that I want to say about Biden's reaction there. Setting aside the fact that it was extremely weak, this is, I think, another example about how and a piece of evidence or a strand of evidence that he has really lost a step or two or three. Even in some of his political instincts, which are not always great, but even a slightly more on top of things, Joe Biden, I think would have seized on this opportunity, something that was clearly beyond the pale. I think we can all agree, unless you're a wacko, unless you're one of these psychos, That chasing a member of Congress into the bathroom on camera because you're not happy on a policy disagreement is unacceptable, not just not appropriate, unacceptable and should be roundly condemned by everyone, especially the people who might agree on some level with the activists. It's been very muted, extremely muted. Cinema is getting the Republican treatment. She's a Democrat, but they're treating her like a Republican because right now. She's standing in the way of, quote unquote, progress. And we don't have this five alarm civility fire that the media is all upset about. Right. We would be having a big national conversation if this were fill in the blank female Democrat being chased into bathrooms by MAGA supporters chanting stop the steal or something. It would be an absolute media meltdown about our norms, our institutions, what is being normalized, the permission structure for violence and harassment, especially against women, blah, blah, blah. You know it and I know it. That is exactly what would be happening today. Instead, the president was sort of like, eh, I guess it's inappropriate. Chuckle, chuckle. She doesn't have uh, security, does she? Part of the process. Next question. Media is not all spun up about it. I haven't seen breathless segments around the clock on CNN and MSNBC. They'd be setting themselves on fire. If the people involved in the, the dynamics were slightly different. And again, this isn't even a Republican. This is a moderate Democrat. But the difference is Biden and the left wingers and the guardians of civility in the media they are generally in agreement that they're annoyed with Kirsten Cinema, so they can't really get that mad about this. Now, back to my point about Joe Biden and his reaction. A better, sharper, more strategic Joe Biden would have taken that question from Peter Ducey, which, of course, he was the one who had to ask it. Right. You didn't have every reporter from every mainstream organization leaping out of their seats to get a denunciation of the treatment of of a woman legislator this way because the dynamics aren't as outrageous 
as they would be, as I said, under different circumstances. So Ducey asked the question, a sharper, more strategic Joe Biden would have gotten ornery, not with Ducey, with the activists. He would have gotten indignant. He would have been protective of Kirsten Cinema because he's sort of like, you know, this old school guy in his late 70s. Sometimes, you know, it's he treats women a little differently than men. That's part of the way he acts. And I'm not just talking about you know, sniffing their hair. He he has some of these different views of what's appropriate for a man versus a woman. And I think a lot of people believe in some level of chivalry and and they'll tolerate a lot more ugliness against a male than a female. Whether you think that's right or wrong, that's sort of the generation and the mindset that Joe Biden has emerged from, that he was steeped in. And instead of getting ornery and indignant, and protective and saying, back the hell off. Come on, man. What the hell are you doing? We don't do that. I'm with you on progress. We've got to do better on immigration. I want to pass Build Back Better. This is not the way to do it. How dare you go after a member of the U.S. Senate this way? It is not acceptable. Like, he could have said all of that stuff standing up to the wackos in his base. He didn't do it. He did basically the opposite. Which is not just, I think, evidence, further evidence of his atrophying political skill. And also, I think, a huge missed opportunity. Because he spent a lot of time, basically by implication, attacking Manchin and Cinema during his remarks and questions today. He was more interested in getting the, the shots in at her than defending her against this boorish, unbelievably awful behavior. And then this is the last point. Think about how stupid it is not to rush to her defense. You need her vote. The Senate is 50-50. There are two members, Manchin and Cinema, on whom this whole thing is going to turn one way or another. They're the ones who are ultimately going to decide what does and does not pass. They've made that clear. Everyone understands the math. One of them gets chased into the bathroom on camera by a pack of hyenas screaming at her. Even if deep down you kind of enjoy it and you don't want to denounce it too much because you're annoyed with her right now, basic common strategic sense politically would be make a big show of defending her instead of shrugging and chuckling about it because you need her vote. Go to bat for her. She was probably rattled by this. She would appreciate this level of support, something robust and significant, strongly worded, powerful from the president in her in her defense. And Biden didn't do that. So wrong on the merits for him to sort of blow it off. That happens to everyone. It's part of the process. And also moronic politically. Hell of a job, Joe. Over and over again. Dems in disarray. Yeah, to say the least. A few more quick thoughts on this SNL wading into our politics again. Brutally unfunny cold open this weekend. I'll explain why on the Guy Benson show next. You're listening to Guy Benson. Everyone okay with Rhodes? I like roads. Me too. Roads are where trucks live. Careful. 
I want no roads. No roads? Why? Chaos. Back on the Guy Benson Show, some hilarity over the weekend from SNL. And I know there's not much of a point, not a lot of utility in fact-checking comedy. I'm being generous using that word here. But they opened the show with the Democrats fighting each other, and they were presenting Kirsten Cinema and Joe Manchin, obviously, as the bad guys. Again, they were getting the Republican treatment. Oh, these uh, dingbat weirdos, dum-dums, who don't even want roads, and they're opposed to everything. Now, of course, the infrastructure bill that's bipartisan was negotiated by those senators. The actual funding for the roads, not all this other spending that the progressives are holding up. They're the hostage takers. The progressives are not cinema and mansion. They negotiated the bipartisan deal on roads. But on SNL, I guess the talking points went out. The progressives are good. The moderates are bad. And they're against roads, even though it's just not even close to what the actual dynamics are here. Later in the sketch, AOC, her character, a woman playing AOC, said this, cut 37. Can't we compromise on anything? Isn't something better than nothing? Oh, see, it's just the voice of reason. AOC, trying to get something as opposed to nothing, which is what those awful centrists want. I guess SNL missed over the weekend when AOC went on a whole rant about how something is not better than nothing. And when you settle for something over nothing, then people like her get hurt and we're not going to stand for it. And all the progressives are like, yeah, you go for it, girl. It's the opposite of what actually happened. SNL comedy, unfunny and ignorant of the actual facts. Good times. Live from the most powerful city in the world, unconventional talk from a fresh, unconventional conservative, Guy Benson Show. A new hour here on The Guy Benson Show. It's Monday, and we're glad to have you along every weekday, 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern Time. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. The podcast is always free. Fox News alert as we begin our middle hour. The Dow is down 323 points for the day, closing at 34,002. Another piece of interesting news that we are monitoring, there's a global outage right now. For all of Facebook and its various platforms, Facebook is down, WhatsApp is down, Instagram down. So apparently they're in total chaos over in Facebook world. They've been uh, attacked in some way, obviously. And this comes amid some revelations from whistleblowers and uh, other allegations against Facebook, both internally and externally about some of their processes and policies and doing certain things to attract increasingly uh, younger and younger audiences to try to hook them on their platforms. There are concerns about that, the effect that that has on young kids. And then a whistleblower who's going to allege and is in the process of alleging in a public way that Facebook in some ways knowingly aided or abetted some of the rioters on January 6th. So it is a very ugly day for Facebook world, and I see that some people are celebrating it. AOC, for example, was uh, tweeting positively about all of this, sort of making a joke out of it, and I feel like a a huge cyber attack on a major platform is not something that we should be celebrating. 
even if we believe that Facebook should answer some tough questions on any number of issues. So we will keep an eye on that with the the outage uh, stretching now hours and reports coming in out of Northern California at headquarters that it's just total, total chaos. With that, let's move on. Let's bring in Britt Hume, senior political analyst here at Fox News. Britt, great to have you back. Thank you, Guy. Before we get into news of the day, I'm wondering if you might, for our audience, reflect on something that we are celebrating and we're very proud of here at Fox News. This week marks the 25th anniversary of the launch of Fox News Channel back in 1996. And if you just maybe want to discuss or uh, share some of your thoughts on the founding of Fox News, the the founding vision of Fox News, and the journey that brings us to where we are today. I know you have been an integral part of basically all of it through those years, and I'd imagine uh, you're pretty proud of those contributions. Well, I'm certainly proud of what Fox News has been able to achieve. Um, back 25 years ago when we were starting it was regarded as inconceivable that this would ever really go anywhere. I mean, it got off the ground, and there was programming up and news programming and conversation uh, talk shows up in in, uh, in in the closing days of of 1996, but nobody ever thought it was going anywhere. Uh, a writer for the New York Times referred to the Fox News Channel as Rupert Murdoch's imaginary friend. So that was the that was sort of what the thinking was. Few gave us any chance to succeed. I believed, and and my coming to Fox News was a function of this, that over time, uh, a news channel that tried to balance news coverage and had a much larger presence of conservative opinion than you know the mainstream media and the networks had, would have a real chance to succeed and would succeed. But I thought you know ten years out maybe we'd be competitive so forth. Well. I, I had it all wrong. Within five years, we were number one, and we've never and we've been number one ever since. It's been amazing. I know that some of our critics say, "Well, in retrospect, it's obvious this is going to work because they've got a bunch of right wing people who are just loyal and brainwashed boomers who are addicted to Fox News and and it's misinformation." I mean, you know, all the haters are coming out to play uh, as we're celebrating twenty five years. I feel like a lot of that analysis misses not only the appeal of Fox as a balancing force in the media, but the attacks almost reinforce, whether they recognize it or not, the need for a Fox News because that kind of sneering contempt is exactly what centrist, center-right, and right-wing people felt from almost the entire media decade after decade after decade and having one outlet – on the broadcast side, you know, talk radio, of course, was a big part of it. But in terms of on-air TV, to have some competition to that group think was kind of a no-brainer. And it gave voice to a ton of people who were more or less shut out or felt shut out from the national conversation, despite representing roughly half the country. Well, that attitude is what uh, uh, has given us, as you suggest, our competitive opportunity and our competitive advantage. 
as long as they continue to think that we're sort of illegitimate and watched only by rubes or ignoramuses and so forth, there's no way that our competitors are ever going to figure it out how to compete with us. I thought, Guy, when I when we first began to succeed, that what our what our our concern should have been was that our competitors would look at what we were doing and say, you know, we probably ought to balance our news product more, and maybe we ought to have some more conservative voices on the air to compete with these guys. Well, they haven't done that at all. They've gone the other way to yeah. a greater extent than I imagine, thereby causing our situation, our, our, our competitive position to improve. And they keep doing it. And, of course, now you hear these condemnations of the, of, of the voters, you know, of, the, of our viewers, I should say, that they, that they must be stupid, stupid right-wing idiots. Thank you. They're, they're uh, the biggest audience out there. And I don't think that's what they are, but uh, these people apparently don't want those viewers. Well, it's how a lot of Democrats of a certain ilk treat voters, and it's how Democrats in the media, of which there are many among our competitors, treat our viewers. I mean, it's sort of part and parcel. Um, Not sure how well it's working out for them, but they are doubling and tripling down, and they're using the opportunity uh, to dump all over the anniversary week. And I I almost thank them uh, for doing so because they are highlighting their own failures and highlighting our success that, as you say, took off very early and we've never looked back because they are so ideologically blinkered elsewhere in the media. They could not bring themselves to even inject a modicum of balance, even if it would have helped them from a competitive standpoint in terms of viewers and money and advertising dollars. They don't have it in them to do it because so many of them are so committed to a left liberal worldview that they were willing to sacrifice dollars and viewers so long as icky people like you and me uh, weren't polluting their airwaves and they weren't necessarily interested in all the icky people who are listening to the two of us have this conversation who watch us on Fox News on a regular basis. And all I can say is their loss, literally. Yeah, keep, keep on doing what you're doing over there, folks. How's it working out for you? <laughs> All right, Brett, let's talk about news of the day. Let's get to President Biden. Uh, He came out and sort of gave this passionate argument on raising the debt ceiling. And of course, he decided to lay this at the feet of Republicans who are completely out of power in Washington, D.C. Democrats run the show. But Biden, as the leader of the Democratic Party, decided that it's Mitch McConnell and the Republicans who are really the true villains here. In Cut 35, here's what he said. As soon as this week, your savings and your pocket, your uh, pocketbook could be directly impacted by this Republican stunt. It's as simple as that. Republicans say they will not do their part to avoid this needless calamity. So be it. But they need to stop playing Russian roulette with the U.S. economy. All right, Brett. Well, as I noted, the Democrats have the House and the Senate and the presidency. They can do this without a single Republican vote. McConnell and the Republicans have said that's exactly what our position is. If you're going to be out there spending and proposing trillions and trillions of dollars in spending that we don't even have a voice, we don't have a seat at the table, you're completely cutting us out of all of that, we're not going to help you raise the debt ceiling in advance. McConnell has made that crystal clear for months. And now they're up against the wall. The Democrats have not moved on this because they can't seemingly move on anything right now. They're all fighting each other. So they're blaming the Republicans. I want to get your reaction to that, Brett, and also throw in this color 
McConnell's office circulated this earlier today. Wouldn't you know, J- Senator Joe Biden and Senator Chuck Schumer, who are all up in arms about the Republican posture here, the Republican tactics, both of them have voted against raising the debt ceiling when Republicans were in total control of Washington in 2004, 2006. This was the Biden position that is now apparently Russian roulette to crash the economy because Republicans are doing what Joe Biden himself did. (laughs) You know, Guy, um, what this is really all about is is that uh, the, the way the Democrats could raise the debt ceiling without any Republican votes is to use this arcane budget procedure called reconciliation, uh, right. or you only need 50 votes, which they certainly have. Um, but the problem with that is they've got all these other things they want to do using reconciliation, and under the rules of the Senate, you can only use reconciliation a, limit, a limited number of times every year. So what they're trying to do now is to preserve the ability to use reconciliation again for other measures that they don't that they can't uh, overcome a filibuster on and and the only way around it is reconciliation but if you've burned off all your reconciliation opportunities you can't do that so that's what when, when you get drilled down a bit that's what this is all about Oh yeah I mean you're absolutely right in terms of the process right I just find it a little bit difficult to swallow to have this public tantrum. I don't think it's going to work. I I don't think the American people, look, people who are partisans on either end, they'll believe whatever their party shovels in their direction for the most part. But for average people, they look at Joe Biden and Chuck Schumer and Nancy Pelosi inveighing against the powerless Republicans for not helping them do the thing that they could do on their own, have not managed to do on their own. And in fact, in the past, in the case of the president and the majority leader in the Senate, they have both cast these types of symbolic votes on the debt ceiling when the party control scenario was reversed. I just I just don't think it's the Republicans' fault is going to fly here. That's just my take. Of course, it's to, it's to um, try to pressure, uh, pressure some Republicans into participating and voting with them. So they won't have to you know, use up their reconciliation opportunities. But I don't think it's going to wash. I don't. This is not. This is not an issue that I have ever noticed being a particular voting issue. You know, I, just don't think I think people, that's also that's even, also even fair. Bought, even if they agreed with the Democrats' argument, I just don't think they'd they'd take it that seriously. Brett, last question, and I addressed this last hour. I assume by now you've seen the videos of Senator Kirsten Cinema, who a lot of the progressives are very angry at right now, uh, being chased at Arizona State University into a bathroom. She literally went into the stall to use the restroom, and they were filming her, yelling at her, chanting at her because they're upset about her position on a spending bill. And President Biden was asked about it today by Peter Ducey, our colleague. And honestly, I was slightly taken aback by his answer. It was cut 34. Joe Manchin had people on kayaks show up to his boat to yell at him. Senator Sinema last night was chased into a restroom. Do you think that those tactics are crossing a line? I don't think they're appropriate tactics, but it happens to everybody. From the, <laughs> the only people it doesn't happen to are people who have Secret Service standing around them. Um, so uh, it's, it's, it's part of the process. A little guffaw in there. He said, not appropriate, which is about as tepid as you can get. And then he said, it happens to everyone. It's part of the process. Britt, you've uh, covered D.C. a long time. Is it commonplace 
for members of the United States Senate to be stalked, uh, hounded and chased into bathrooms while on camera by activists? Because apparently Joe Biden thinks it's just sort of, uh, to quote him, part of the process. I've never heard anybody being chased into a bathroom before. Um, I'm tempted to wonder if if Biden didn't get chased out of a bathroom because he went into the wrong one, but I'm not sure that ever happened either. Hmm. I'm just taken aback by his cavalier response and sort of the little laugh in there saying, oh, well, if you don't have Secret Service protection, this is what happens. And setting aside the morality of it and the norms that he and his party talk about endlessly, just from a political standpoint, strategically, he needs her vote. And to not you know, go to the mats for her on the easiest thing, which is to really call out the people who did this awful thing, he could buy himself a little bit of goodwill with one of the two senators whose votes he desperately needs, and instead he did what he did. I, I just – I question every part of that answer, actually. Well, uh, Guy, remember – I mean, I question the, uh, that too. It's, a, it's uh, unwise. Um, but – being wise is not something that people have known Joe Biden for a very long time ever accused him of. Um, you know, he was always gaff-prone, given to say the wrong thing at the wrong time and having to apologize. Um, so I would I would put this in that category. I think your take on it is right. It was stupid. Britt Hume, senior political analyst here at Fox News, as we are celebrating this week, 25 years on the air. I've been on air here since 2013. Britt, a few years uh, before me, uh, joined the team. And Britt, it's it's an honor to be here at Fox News and an honor to call you a colleague. And we're so glad that you made some time for us today. Thank you, Guy. We're very glad you're here. And with that, we will step aside and come right back. It's the Guy Benson Show. Don't go anywhere. The Guy Benson Show. More next. I'm Guy Benson, and as we return to The Guy Benson Show, I do see CNN is now covering the uh, cinema harassment in the bathroom. Graphic says, out of bounds. I mean, it's the bare minimum. I'm glad they're doing that. Um, But it's been pretty muted. Pretty muted today. And the president was part of that approach, which, as I said with Britt, human in my previous hour it's just wrong morally foolish strategically and incredibly dumb politically there's joe biden meanwhile this story out of florida i want to bring this to your attention casey desantis the governor uh, the governor's wife so wife of governor ron desantis casey has been diagnosed with breast cancer Quote, I'm saddened to I have saddened to report that Florida's esteemed first lady and my beloved wife has been diagnosed with breast cancer. The governor said in a statement shared first with Fox News on Monday. Quoting still here from the governor, as a mother of three young children, Casey is the centerpiece of our family and has made an impact on the lives of countless Floridians throughout her initiatives as first lady. As she faces the most difficult test of her life. She will not only have my unwavering support, but the support of our entire family, as well as the prayers and well wishes from Floridians across our state. Casey is a true fighter. She will never, never, never give up. Casey DeSantis is 41. She and Governor DeSantis together are the parents of Madison, Mason, and Mammy. Madison is four. Mason is three, the youngest 18 months. 
So to get that diagnosis at a very young age is obviously scary. Let's hope that they caught it early. If you're the praying type, please lift up your prayers for the First Lady of Florida. And even if you disagree with Governor DeSantis on any number of issues, I hope we can still come together and say as one, go beat cancer. Casey DeSantis, we are all rooting and praying for you and your family. It's The Guy Benson Show. We'll be right back. You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson. Back on The Guy Benson Show, halfway through today's program. It's a new week. Thank you for tuning in. So last week... My friend, my mentor, Hugh Hewitt, had Dr. Anthony Fauci on his radio show. He has a morning show. And he asked this question of Dr. Fauci. You'll hear the question and part of the response. Cut 39. I've lost confidence in the CDC and the FDA. And I actually believe a lot of Americans, a significant part of America, now have lost confidence in you, Dr. Fauci. Is there a point where you will say... I do more harm than good because people don't listen to me anymore and step aside. No, absolutely unequivocally no, Hugh. Sorry. So he's not concerned about his lack of credibility. He's not going to go anywhere. I'm not surprised. I mean, what else is he going to say? Oh, yes, people don't trust me anymore, so I'm out of here. I do feel like handing the baton off to someone who is less polarizing and less distrusted with less baggage at this point might be wise. We've seen focus group data. We've seen polling data that aside from the hardcore Fauci brigade, people who love him, the neurotic people in society who are obsessed with any restriction imaginable, they're for it. And self-described Democrats, those people all love Fauci and listen to his every word and hang on his every word. Unfortunately, his word impacts actual policy and guidance for a lot of elements of our society. So it's not like what he says is irrelevant, even if a lot of people simply disregard what he has to say or tune him out entirely, which is true for many people. Independents, undecided people, unpersuaded people, Republicans, he has a real problem there when it comes to trust. And that's not just my observation or my belief. There's data. As I mentioned from polling, we've talked about it here. Frank Luntz, has these focus groups where he basically begs anyone who will listen, please get this guy off of TV. He is not helping. In fact, he's making things worse. That was the basis of Hugh's question that he put directly to Fauci. And Fauci's not going anywhere. I feel like the guy does nothing but interviews constantly. He is on TV more than most people whose job it is to be on TV. He does constant interviews and there's a, case to be made that it's counterproductive because of the contradictions, the flip-flops, the guidance that I think bears no relation to the actual experience that people have in their lives, the noble lies that he has told on things like herd immunity, on masks, famously. So I think it's a totally inbounds question from Hugh and an unsurprising, if slightly indignant answer from Fauci. But I want to give you a few more examples of why it's a legitimate question. So on Face the Nation, CBS yesterday, Fauci was asked about the holidays and Christmas coming up and whether or not he felt comfortable saying that Americans can spend the holidays with their families. And he would not just say yes or give an upbeat sounding 
answer about holiday plans and sort of this sense of getting back to normal. Instead, he went the ultra, ultra cautious route again in cut 18. But we can gather for Christmas or it's just too soon to tell? You know, Margaret, it's just too soon to tell. We've just got to concentrating on continuing to get those numbers down and not try to jump ahead by weeks or months and say what we're going to do at a particular time. Let's focus like a laser on continuing to get those those cases down. And we can do it by people getting vaccinated and also in the situation where boosters are appropriate to get people boosted. Okay, so I don't have a problem with him talking about where some people should get booster shots and let's all get vaccinated and let's focus on the task at hand. That's fine. But I think in order to start convincing people that they should do the things that he encourages or urges them or advises them to do, even holding out the possibility that they might come down with guidance saying spend another holiday season away from your family, the amount of damage that that prospect will do the impact that would have on the psyche of a lot of people saying these jerks might actually try to do this again, even in a post-vaccine environment? No, absolutely not. And that was the almost immediate reaction that I saw nearly universally, aside from you know the Fauci brigade. They'll defend everything he says, and they all want to just cower in their houses, have everyone cower at home. Everything is for safety, and we're never going to be safe enough. I completely reject that entire attitude, that entire mindset. We cannot live like that. And I say that as someone who is a fierce and consistent advocate for vaccines. And I think when you tell people or even hint, we might have to do another Christmas season where people are advised not to be with their families and not to get together with loved ones or do Christmas parties, whatever. When you have 75 percent of eligible Americans, roughly, with at least one vaccine shot, it is a gift to the anti-vax fringe to say, you see, it's a never-ending parade of safety theater. And they're never going to let us get back to normal, no matter what. And do the vaccines really work if this is the way that they talk about it? Now, this has been part of my frustration with him and a lot of the public health establishment now for months. Now, Fauci has come out and cleaned this up a little bit today. Right, so we played you the clip from CBS. He went on CNN earlier and he said, I will be spending Christmas with my family. I encourage people, particularly the vaccinated people who are protected, to have a good, normal Christmas with your family. That's his quote today, having gotten all this blowback from the quote yesterday, which he said was taken out of context or people misinterpreted him. You heard what you heard. The question was, can we hang out with our families at Christmas or is it too early to say? And he said it's too early to say. And I think a lot of people have PTSD from the last year and a half, and they hear that from someone who has immense influence within the federal bureaucracy, and they say, "Uh uh-oh, why is he hedging? Why is he hemming or hawing about the holiday season? He encourages people, particularly the vaccinated who are protected, to go have a normal Christmas. I agree with that message. I wish he had just said that in the first place. It really wasn't so hard, was it, Doc? Except they have also talked about the need to protect the vaccinated. Right, that's the Joe Biden, Kamala Harris White House line these days. When they're attacking unvaccinated people as a huge threat to vaccinated people saying we've got to protect the protected. And then Fauci turns around today to clean up a previous mess that he just made saying, yes, go have a Christmas with your family. I'm going to do the same thing. Have a good, normal Christmas, especially if you're vaccinated because you're protected. Well, the president just told us that the reason 
that he's going to try to put a mandate in place to protect us if we're vaccinated from the unvaccinated. You can see perhaps how things get a little bit confusing to a lot of people. Or Fauci has to do this about face or at least a partial about face in the span of 24 hours because people understandably are concerned about what he might be laying the table to do ahead of the holidays. And again, this is not 2020 anymore. We have more than remember Fauci initially said 70 percent immunized would be herd immunity. That's what he told us. Now, he later admitted that that was a noble lie and he was trying to get a more reasonable or attainable number that people could wrap their heads around and then he could nudge it up a little bit. He admitted this. This is part of the problem with Dr. Fauci and the way he communicates. But his initial claim to the American people was we will have approximately herd immunity around 70 percent. And now we're at 75 percent, at least partially vaccinated. And they're still talking like that doesn't really matter. And we're still going to have all sorts of restrictions, mandates, concerns, etc. This is why the gap in trust and credibility exists. And I think it's delusional on his part and very insulated and myopic for him not to at least have some self-reflection and recognize the role that he has played in this problem. Speaking of which, there are a few more examples that I want to get to, more audio that I want to respond to from Dr. Fauci. He might need to take some self-inventory if he's interested in being truly part of the solution as opposed to racking up even more media interviews. That sound, as soon as we come back, you don't want to miss it on The Guy Benson Show. The Guy Benson Show. More next. We continue on The Guy Benson Show. I'm walking through some recent sound bites from Dr. Anthony Fauci. I think that he's really doing harm to the causes that I know he thinks he's supporting and helping, I'm not convinced that he's helping at all. I think he's hurting. Now, here's another example having to do with vaccine mandates. He was defending the idea of requiring vaccinations. And again, he was sort of talking about the balance between individual choices and liberty and the greater good. This was part of his explanation of why he was more in favor of requiring different populations to get the vaccine. Here's what he said in cut 21 in a Zoom interview in the last few days. You are a member of society. And as a member of society, reaping all the benefits of being a member of society, you have a responsibility to society. And I think each of us, particularly in the context of a pandemic that's killing millions of people, you have got to look at it and say there comes a time When you do have to give up what you consider your individual right of making your own decision for the greater good of society. All right. So that's Fauci now. But last year, CNN had a story about an interview with Dr. Fauci. I believe it was actually a press conference where Fauci was discussing the vaccines and the prospect of vaccines becoming widely available. This was before they were. They were still in development When Fauci said this, but I'm going to quote Fauci's words to you directly. This is from the summer of last year. Quote, I don't think you'll ever see a mandating of the vaccine, particularly for the general public. This is during a uh, town hall setting. Fauci said everyone had the right to refuse a vaccine. Quote, if someone refuses the vaccine in the general public, then there's nothing you can do about it. You cannot force someone to take a vaccine. That's what Fauci said last summer. And now he's sounding a little bit different. Now, he always gives himself a little bit of room to work and maneuver and wiggle. 
and say, well, I'm not fully supporting a total blanket mandate for every person. However, this is why some of the requirements are okay, and you've got to think about society more broadly and the duty that you have and not so much your individual rights to make decisions for yourself. When we were getting ready for the vaccine rollout and we were just a few months away last year, he said you'll never see a mandate on vaccines. There's nothing you can do about it if someone declines to take it. You cannot force someone to take a vaccine, he said. And now it sounds like his tune has changed just a little bit, hasn't it? Now, I'm on board with him urging everyone to get vaccinated. We've been doing that ad nauseum on this show for month after month after month. But he's the most famous, most prominent doctor in America. And when you say something publicly, whether it's on herd immunity or masks or vaccine requirements, right? We heard this from the White House, too. The president, Jen Psaki, top officials, CDC officials, we're not going to have vaccine requirements. We don't envision that. That's not the role of the federal government. We played you all those clips when Biden then turned around and announced a federal mandate on businesses. When people in charge, whether it's Dr. Fauci or anyone else, say something pretty unequivocally to allay concerns of the American people about the government forcing them to do things or the government's wisdom on any given policy in the middle of a pandemic, and then they end up either changing their position radically or doing precisely the opposite of what they insisted would be the case, that is also a serious contributor to this problem. And once again, there's Dr. Anthony Fauci in the thick of it. How about this one? From Cut 22, he was doing an interview with The Atlantic at one of their forums. And this was in the context of talking about boosters and getting people's immune levels boosted back up, especially in certain populations. But again, the way that he frames this, I think, is a real problem. Listen to Cut 22. It is an assumption that is okay to get infected and to get mild and moderate disease as long as you don't wind up in the hospital and die. And I have to be open and honest. I reject that. Well, you can reject that, doctor. And I understand the point saying, hey, if we can help prevent people getting ill from COVID, we should try to do that. But if the message is now, it's not just okay to prevent hospitalizations and death. It's not just okay to shrug and accept mild or moderate disease with COVID. I don't understand what the limiting principle is at this point. And I get he was talking about booster shots, but this was a broader point that Fauci was making. And with all due respect to the doctor, the whole goal is to get us from a pandemic down to an endemic seasonal virus that is no longer out of control and that we actually, yes, live with, which includes people getting mildly or moderately ill but not to the point of having to go to the hospital or, God forbid, die because we have immunity through natural immunity, of course, and then widespread vaccination. And that's what cuts down on very severe cases to the point that we can start treating it like the flu. That is the end game from my perspective. That's the off ramp that we need as a society. What he's talking about here, or at least it sounds like he's talking about here, is eradicating covid related illness altogether. Because he says he rejects the idea that it's okay to have mild or moderate cases. Well, that's just not realistic. There's no way to get from here to there. The whole goal is to keep the hospitals from getting filled up with COVID patients 
and to keep people from dying as a result of this disease. The way you do that is through immunity. But then saying you reject that as the ultimate goal in favor of what sounds like an eradication strategy, which is totally unrealistic, that is begging further questions about is there any real way to get us out of the pandemic scenario and get us and get us off this pandemic footing in perpetuity. We can't stay like this forever. We can't live like this forever. We have to get back to normal. The way we do that is when COVID basically becomes the flu. And for Fauci to reject that as a goal, I think is very concerning. And I would love to see Fauci asked follow-up questions in depth about some of these things that he's saying. The flip-flops, the pronouncements, the decrees. A lot of people have stopped listening to this guy and did long ago. They've soured on him. Some people were never a fan of his. He might say, if you're not interested in what Fauci has to say, you're not interested in his analysis, then don't listen to him and tune him out. Fine. But so long as the president is not tuning him out, so long as a lot of institutions and businesses are not tuning him out, Dr. Fauci's opinion and the things that he's spouting off about on any given day still matter and can still impact a lot of people. And again, I don't think he's a rotten guy or, you know, spawn of Satan and just awful people, you know, hate the guy while other people worship him. I've never been in either camp, but I have grown very weary of the way that he talks about issues in a manner, in my opinion, that adds to confusion, shifts the goalposts far too often and instills a sense among many, understandably, I would argue, that there isn't really an exit strategy. And that they'll always end up shifting the standards inevitably and inexorably over and over again. And if that's the sense that a lot of Americans have, I think that's really damaging. And that's the reason why, to bring it full circle, the question asked by Hugh Hewitt of Dr. Fauci directly, I think was an appropriate one and an insightful one. And if Fauci really wanted to do the most good as a doctor, he might contemplate in the quiet of his heart in a moment whether Hugh was on to something with the premise of the question that I know he reflexively rejected outright. Because I would argue he is not helping in a lot of cases and has not been helping as a public face of all of this for quite some time. Final hour of the Guy Benson Show is coming up. Don't go anywhere. Howie Kurtz up next. Stay with us. Five o'clock in the most powerful city in the world, Washington, D.C. It's time for the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Finland's most popular alcoholic beverage has come to America. Visit thelongdrink.com. And now, here's your host, Guy Benson. Happy Hour on this Monday here on the Guy Benson Show. Thanks so much for tuning in. 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern Time every weekday. GuyBensonShow.com. That's our website. The podcast is always free. All the ways to listen live, all right there as well. GuyBensonShow.com. And the happy hour is brought to you by the Finnish Long Drink, which is so good and refreshing. Let me try that cranberry flavor heading into the fall as you start to enter sweater weather just a little bit. TheLongDrink.com is their website. 
thelongdrink.com. You can find out where they are sold near you. And if they haven't expanded yet to your state because they are on the move, you also have the option of ordering online. Thelongdrink.com. Always drink responsibly. 21 plus only. Thank you very much. With us now is Howie Kurtz, host of Fox News Channel's Media Buzz every Sunday morning at 11 a.m. on FNC. Also host of the hit podcast Media Buzz Meter. You can follow him on Twitter at Howard Kurtz. Howie, great to have you back. Great to be back, Guy. So this week, Fox News is celebrating 25 years. The anniversary of the launch of Fox News Channel is just a few days away. And I know that we are engaged in all sorts of programming and people are reflecting on the last. Yeah, exactly. But also celebrating celebrating a quarter of a century on the air at FNC. And it's sort of fun to see some of the flashback clips and some of the reflections that people who've been here a long time have as they look back on their careers and look back on the history of the channel. Where were you and where were you working 25 years ago this week? Uh, I was working at the Washington Post, and I had to write about this. And it's hard to remember now, with Fox having been so dominant in the ratings for so long, but it came online uh, in 96, around the same time as MSNBC. CNN was dominant. And there was a kind of a um, condescending attitude in the media, like, ah, you know, how these other channels really going to succeed? CNN has been doing this for so long. Not recognizing, particularly in the case of Fox, that there was a whole audience out there that felt underserved, obviously including many conservatives, but others maybe who just weren't comfortable with the broadcast networks or CNN. And it took Fox several years uh, to get traction, uh, to, to build up its personalities, and to become the force, whether you like it or not. Obviously, Fox remains controversial that it is today. When was it that you started to maybe get the sense that, hold on, the poo-pooing and the condescending attitude might have been off base here? They might be onto something, and, and this is now – a real competitor, because I remember when I was an intern years ago for Sean Hannity, he and Alan Combs on Hannity and Combs, they both would tell stories about how totally dismissive Larry King was. They were up against Larry King in the 9 p.m. hour Eastern time. CNN broadly just sort of smirking at any mention of Fox News, sort of scoffing at the notion that they could be competitive, let alone dominant. Of course, Fox now for years has had the last laugh. Did you have an aha moment when you recognized, hold up, this is for real, at least as a ratings juggernaut? Um, I think around 2000, I started to take Fox more seriously, not just because the numbers were creeping up. You know, one of the problems I had was I couldn't watch it because the places that I lived didn't get Fox News Channel on the cable system. And so I w- could watch it during the day when I was at work, but I couldn't watch it at night, and that, w- that was an issue. Um, and then the other thing is that CNN, you know, which had that huge lead, it didn't change. It kept doing the same kind of straight-ahead broadcasting, ironically, and I don't think anybody at CNN or MSNBC would deny this, the model that Roger Ailes uh, developed, uh, making the personalities the star. Remember, CNN was always the news is the star. You know, we don't have big personalities. We got Wolf. Um, it, uh, became one that everybody copied. They did it in their own way, and obviously much more from the left, and especially in the case of MSNBC, but it was basically the Fox model. And here we are today, 25 years later, and the numbers are pretty incredible. And we don't have to get into all of them and pat ourselves on the back. And I think it's cool that both of us have sort of in our own ways been a small part of the success. You, I'd say, bigger 
part of that success than I have been since you've got your own show on the news channel. But it's been, I think, an honor, at least for me, to be a part of the team all the way back to those intern days and then getting hired on the air in 2013. I can't believe it's already been, oh, my gosh, what, like eight years? That That is pretty astonishing to me that it's flown by that quickly. But setting aside our role and without getting too sort of uh, inward looking here and indulgent, in your analysis, and of course you're an employee here, but you've spent a lot of time in this business covering the news. That has always been your beat. It still is here. What is the role of Fox News today and how different is it or is it different than what it was, let's say, even 10 years ago? Well, it's usually different just because it is such a force, just because it is such a juggernaut. And um, the people who are the loyalists who watch Fox News, maybe listen to Fox News Radio, subscribe to Fox Nation, uh, they are very, very loyal. They're a more diverse audience than might be imagined. Otherwise, my show couldn't be on the air because I'm not of the right or the left. I try to do a down-the-middle show. Uh, I think certainly the Republican Party, anyone who's running for office in the Republican Party, and this was especially true during the Donald Trump years, especially when President Trump did most of his interviews with Fox. You know, it seems to me... Well, he watched us a lot. Yes, and reacted. You know, Fox and Friends would have a segment, and next thing you know, he'd be tweeting or uh, would take some action in response to what he had seen on the air. So that that was an awful lot of both influence and responsibility. And I'll just make the quick final point that uh, now, and this goes both ways, and I think there's too much polarization in the media, and I don't exempt Fox News Channel from that. But now, uh, when I, since I, my job to watch all of them, CNN and MSNBC spent a lot of time talking about Fox, taking shots at Fox, going after Fox's, especially primetime personalities, to the point where you wonder if Fox disappeared tomorrow, what would they have to talk about? Right. They no longer have President Trump and they no longer have Fox News. Like half their programming just disappears overnight. Uh, So it is an unhealthy obsession and fixation, it seems, at times. But I guess they're doing what they can to try to drag down a competitor. They're just doing a pretty lousy job of it. If you look at the actual numbers and the ratings. Howie, I want to shift away from our discussion of our own network and talk about something I've noticed in particular recently. And I'll start with the exception to the rule or a journalist who is bucking this trend. Chris Wallace, our colleague on Fox News Sunday, had Cedric Richmond from the White House, a Biden advisor on, and they were pushing this whole notion. This is the last couple of weeks now. The Democrats have been that if you pay for a bill and it's deficit neutral, then it really costs nothing or costs zero dollars. I've been covering politics in and around D.C. now for more than a decade. I had never heard that issue framed that way before. It's pretty shameless in my view, but much of the Democratic Party just went along with it. Chris Wallace obviously uh, was having none of it yesterday on Fox News Sunday. Here's just a little clip where he challenged Cedric Richmond on this exact point. Cut seven. If it's a $2 trillion spending plan, net-net, it costs $2 trillion. Well, I'm not necessarily sure about that, uh, Chris. Yeah, so (laughs) Richmond goes on and, and repeats the spin that we got from the president, that we've gotten from a lot of leading Democrats, and, and this is the media angle, Howie, that we have started to see a little bit more in the media, fact checkers, rather than racing out to say, oh, this is, you know, all the Pinocchios and all the pants on fire or whatever, you had some nuance injected into the conversation. Well, we're talking about net cost versus total cost. And is it really, 
you know, inaccurate to say, whereas I think that on its face, it's just ludicrous to say trillions of dollars of spending paid for or unpaid for costs zero dollars. It costs trillions. I mean, that that's just the reality of it. And yet there seemed to be some in the press who took a new Democratic talking point instantly at face value and were kind of contorting themselves to try to justify it, at least in some way. I've seen this recently in a number of newspapers where a term has popped up, irregular migration, as opposed to illegal immigration or undocumented migrants. There's a new term, as I mentioned, uh, which is irregular migration. And that quickly made the jump over into the Washington Post, for example, Uh, the whole question of what we refer to pregnant women as. uh, I say pregnant women. It is the woke sort of lefty activist talking point to say pregnant people because their argument is, well, there are some trans men out there who are pregnant. And so we can't say pregnant women. That has also been adopted by many in the media. And it's just a very strange thing to me, Howie, to watch as media organizations, news organizations seem to in very short order swallow whole or at least start to dabble in a brand new lexicon as soon as the Democratic Party or a certain class of activists invent a new term. This whole the cost is zero thing is such a lame talking point. Now, it gets conflated with a real thing, which is do you pay for new programs by raising taxes? And Biden does have tax increases in some of these gargantuan bills. And he, he can make the point that you know, Trump didn't fully pay for his tax cuts. That's fine. But the cost is not zero. If you're raising taxes, it means somebody's paying for it. It's coming out of our taxpayer dollars. So it's just uh, almost Orwellian in its audacity. And what happened is, look, what happened Friday was an huge embarrassment to Nancy Pelosi, to Joe Biden. They couldn't get a vote on the House floor on something that actually was a big accomplishment from Biden, a bipartisan uh, trillion-dollar infrastructure bill, because the left is holding it hostage, because the Bernies and the AOCs, and Biden talked about this today, and he blames it on two senators, meaning uh, Kirsten Sinema and Joe Manchin, uh, will not allow a vote on something that they could have taken the, the W. They could have said, look, we do this, now we'll come back and we'll do these other things. And instead, they're just trying to push too much spending into a system that can't accommodate that much. So they're forced to kind of try to explain it and spin it away. And I was glad Chris Wallace came back three times because Cedric uh, Richmond was stuck with a kind of an indefensible explanation. Yeah, I mean, as I say, prima facie ludicrous. I don't think almost anyone buys it except some in the media. I mean, and that goes and maybe the other two points are better examples of this where, you know, one day I wake up and I've never heard the term irregular migration. Then the Biden administration starts saying it. And then that's the way it's referred to in the pages of the Washington Post, not in direct quotes from Mayorkas or something, but this the way it's being the phenomenon is being described in the Washington Post. Same thing with pregnant people. It's like it was pregnant women forever. Now it's pregnant people. And that's like the style guides are adjusted on the fly to accommodate the terminology preferred by a certain element of the political spectrum and the political conversation. And I don't know. I just don't think that's really a great service that the news media is doing because it seems like they're just kind of taking a side, not just when it comes to the substance, but in terms of the language and the way we discuss the substance as well. As many in the media did when the White House said the border situation is not a crisis, don't use the word crisis and stop stop using crisis. Then the Haitian migration started, and of course it was a crisis. Yep, I think that's a great point because there were memos. If I recall correctly... There were some memos in certain news organizations who said, "Okay, we're not 
calling this a crisis because I guess that was a Republican talking point. So heaven forfend the media institutionalize a Republican talking point, even if it's just an acknowledgement of reality. And instead, there's this new formulation of reality that they then rush to embrace because it's what the progressives of the Democrats are saying. I think that it is one of the many data points in support of a broader media bias narrative. Last question for you, Howie. I know you've been talking about this a little bit on your show. You've been writing about it. You've been thinking about it. Big tech, some of the controversies surrounding. I know Facebook is in hot water these days. Looks like Facebook and some of their platforms have been down for a significant period of time today. Separate issue. There's also YouTube that has banned so-called misinformation about anti-vaccine you know, talking points or those who are anti-vax. They're banning uh, that content from their platform. And I am very opposed to misinformation, especially about something as important as vaccines during a pandemic. And we do our best to be very accurate about those subjects here on the show from our platform. I guess my concern comes and stems from the powers that be in various capacities deciding to crack down on misinformation in the very recent past. For example, the lab leak theory right on the origins of the virus or the Hunter Biden laptop story. Information was suppressed under the guise or under the banner of blocking misinformation, it turned out that it actually wasn't misinformation. And it just it it makes me uncomfortable who's making these decisions and who the arbiter of truth gets to be, especially when the people who have appointed themselves as the arbiters of truth in the very recent past have gotten it, I think, very wrong in pretty significant ways. Who's making the decision in this case is Google, which owns YouTube. And, you know, I'm, I, I don't like lies about the coronavirus vaccine. I think people's lives could be at stake. But when you look at the fine print of what YouTube is saying, uh, it, some of it seems pretty subjective to me. And as you say, the goalposts get moved. What was misinformation yesterday could be at least acceptable, or certainly there should be debate about it today. So the idea that these tech companies, with very little complaint from organized journalism, which used to be against censorship, and again, you know, if it's an outright lie yeah. and, and, and it says, that, you know, can make you impotent in something. I'm all for removing it from a platform, but I think this stuff goes too far, and there's a history of overreach here by these tech giants. Howie Kurtz hosts Media Buzz every Sunday morning on Fox News Channel. Check out his podcast, Media Buzz Meter, at foxnewspodcasts.com. Howie, always a pleasure. Thanks so much. I enjoyed it. Take care, Guy. All right, talk soon. It's the happy hour on The Guy Benson Show. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. Line drive. Here comes Wade. Here's the throw. He's safe. And the Yankees walk off into the postseason. Happy hour on the Guy Benson Show. And that made me happy yesterday. The Yankees on the very last day of the regular season had a walk-off 1-0 win in the Bronx against Tampa Bay. So they advance to the wild card game in Boston tomorrow night against their rival. The Red Sox were down 5-1 to one here in Washington to the Nationals in the latter part of the game yesterday, but they battled back and won 7-5. Nationals were awful this year. And so the Red Sox were able to clinch their playoff spot as well. They will host the Yankees tomorrow. And in the National League, you've got the wild card winners, the Dodgers and the Cardinals facing off. And then all the division winners are just cooling their heels for the moment, waiting to see what will happen and who they will face. I know some of the matchups are set, but they have a few extra days to get their starting rotations in order, and they have an advantage 
going into the playoffs, as they should because they won their division. So we will be watching some of that. I know the Yankees-Red Sox is tomorrow night up at Fenway Park. Meanwhile, it was just a very eventful day in sports yesterday. The much-hyped Tom Brady returning to New England game to face his old team, his old coach. It was a nail-biter. It came down to a doink of a field goal at the very end of the game. And Tom Brady, who just has a knack for winning regardless of what uniform he's wearing, goes into Gillette Stadium in Foxborough and beats the Patriots. And I'd imagine there were some mixed emotions among many of the Patriot fans. That little post-game hug was intriguing between Bill Belichick and Tom Brady. It was a hug. There was something muttered. It was awfully quick. And then Belichick pulled away to go deal with the loss. And Brady, for just half a second, looked stunned. Like, it happened so fast. Wait, where'd you go? What's happening? Why was that so fast? And then he moved on with various other handshakes and post-game salutations. So a busy, busy day in sports yesterday. Perhaps we'll look forward to the Major League Baseball playoffs later this week on the program, but October's a great time for all sorts of reasons. In the sporting world, not the least of which is baseball playoffs are back, this time with fans fully in the stands, as it should be. The Guy Benson Show continues after this break. Don't go anywhere. Guy Benson. Rolling along, it's the happy hour on The Guy Benson Show. Glad to have you here. Also is glad to welcome back to the program Britt Hume earlier today. Britt, the senior political analyst at Fox News. And he's a veteran of this network. He's been here a long time, which is why I was eager to get his take and his thoughts on Fox News turning 25 this week. We also discussed Biden, a few other issues as well. Here's part of that conversation with Britt Hume. Before we get into news of the day, I'm wondering if you might, for our audience, reflect on something that we are celebrating and we're very proud of here at Fox News this week marks the 25th anniversary of the launch of Fox News Channel back in 1996. And if you just maybe want to discuss or uh, share some of your thoughts on the founding of Fox News, the, the founding vision of Fox News, and the journey that brings us to where we are today, I know you have been an integral part of basically all of it through those years, and I'd imagine uh, you're pretty proud of those contributions. Well, I'm certainly proud of what Fox News has been able to achieve. Um, Back 25 years ago when we were starting, it was regarded as inconceivable that this would ever really go anywhere. I mean, it got off the ground and there was programming up and news programming and conversation uh, talk shows up in in the closing days of of 1996, but nobody ever thought it was going anywhere. Uh, A writer for the New York Times referred to the Fox News Channel as Rupert Murdoch's imaginary friend. So that was the that was sort of what the thinking was. Few gave us any chance to succeed. I believed and and my coming to Fox News was a function of this, that over time, uh, a news channel that tried to balance news coverage and had a much larger presence of conservative opinion than you know, the mainstream media and the networks had would have a real chance to succeed and would succeed. 
But I thought, you know, 10 years out, maybe we'd be competitive, so forth. Well, I, I had it all wrong. Within five years, we were number one, and we've never and we've been number one ever since. It's been amazing. I know that some of our critics say, well, in retrospect, it's obvious that this is going to work because they've got a bunch of right-wing people who are just loyal and brainwashed boomers who are addicted to Fox News and and it's misinformation. I mean, you know, all the haters are coming out to play uh, as we're celebrating 25 years. I feel like a lot of that analysis misses not only the appeal of Fox as a balancing force in the media, but the attacks almost reinforce, whether they recognize it or not, the need for a Fox News because that kind of sneering contempt is exactly what centrist, center-right, and right-wing people felt from almost the entire media decade after decade after decade. And having one outlet on the broadcast side, you know, talk radio, of course, was a big part of it, but in terms of on-air TV, to have some competition to that groupthink was kind of a no-brainer, and it gave voice to a ton of people who were more or less shut out or felt shut out from the national conversation, despite representing roughly half the country. Well, that attitude is what uh, uh, has given us, as you suggest, our competitive opportunity and our competitive advantage. As long as they continue to think that we're sort of illegitimate and watched only by rubes or ignoramuses and so forth, there's no way that our competitors are ever going to figure it out how to compete with us. I thought, Guy, when I when we first began to succeed, that what our what our our concern should have been was that our competitors would look at what we were doing and say, you know, we probably ought to balance our news product more, and maybe we ought to have some more conservative voices on the air to compete with these guys. Well, they haven't done that at all. They've gone the other way to yeah. a greater extent than I imagine, thereby causing our situation, our, our, our competitive position to improve. And they keep doing it. And, of course, now you hear these condemnations of the, of the, of the voters, you know, of, the, of our viewers, I should say, that they, that they must be stupid, stupid right-wing idiots. Thank you. They're, they're uh, the biggest audience out there. And I don't think that's what they are, but uh, these people apparently don't want those viewers. Well, it's how a lot of Democrats of a certain ilk treat voters, and it's how Democrats in the media, of which there are many among our competitors, treat our viewers. I mean, it's sort of part and parcel. For my full interview with Britt Hume, log on, GuyBensonShow.com. You can also get the free podcast, no charge to you, on demand every day. GuyBensonShow.com is your one-stop shop for all of it. Also, you can go wherever you get your podcasts. When we come back, the home stretch. A weekend that was memorable, a game to forget. We'll get to that when we return. For the full interview and more, go to GuyBensonShow.com. Home stretch on the Guy Benson Show. Thanks for listening. So I was on the flight back to D.C. yesterday, and there were some fellow Northwestern fans on the flight and some of their gear. And we were all looking a little bit shell-shocked after the game on Saturday night. We were talking about it on Friday's show that I was in Nebraska doing the show from our affiliate, KOIL, in Omaha, driving up to Lincoln Saturday night for the Northwestern Wildcats, visiting the Nebraska Cornhuskers. I was not terribly sanguine about the Wildcats' chances for a few different reasons, but I was not anticipating 
a complete humiliating beatdown. Final score, 56-7. to Nebraska scored touchdowns on seven of their first eight possessions. I mean, they were just scoring at will. So, I mean, it was over in the first quarter. And there were a handful of purple fans in the crowd, and we were looking at each other on the flight yesterday like, yo, what happened? This was a top-10 team last year. We finished number 10 in the country. With an elite defense, I understand that some guys went on to the NFL. Our defensive coordinator, who was fantastic, retired. But you don't go from an elite defense to that overnight, typically. So it was uh, it was rough. I had the experience, though. Lincoln was a lot of fun. The fans were great. Overall, Nebraska fans, they have a reputation. I've heard other friends who've gone they are very welcoming. They're extremely friendly and, and respectful. I had multiple people offer to buy me drinks. Just like, hey, thanks for making the trip to Lincoln. We appreciate you showing up. What are you drinking? Really, really nice. Other people could not be more complimentary. Oh, what a great program. What a great school. We love your coach. All this stuff. Good luck tonight. Good luck the rest of the way. That sort of thing. Which is not the sort of hospitality That you always get as a visiting fan at sporting venues. I think it is very safe to say that. I've experienced it. There are other fan bases that are less hospitable, to put it mildly. So tip of the cap to the Husker fans. In fact, even some of the trash talking that I got was relatively polite and tongue-in-cheek. When we scored our one touchdown to make the score, I believe at the time, 21-7, to I stood up and I clapped. I wasn't yelling and screaming. I was just clapping. And a guy down the aisle goes, hey, keep it down over there. And then winked at me because I was not being disruptive at all. And I think we all saw how that game was going. But part of the experience, I guess, at Memorial Stadium is to have these things called runzas, I believe, is the product. It's like a little hot pocket meets a Philly cheesesteak. But instead of onions and cheese, it's cabbage and beef. This is the product that Senator Ben Sass sells. He's a vendor. He goes to these games sometimes and sells runzas, like going through the stands. Get your runza here, and it's a U.S. senator. Then they have a pizza. I forget the exact brand. So I had a bite of the pizza, half a runza. By halftime, I watched the performance from the marching band. I said, Northwestern gets the ball to start the half. I'll watch our first drive. If we don't score a touchdown, I think we're out of here. And uh, narrator, they did not score a touchdown. In fact, they had to punt the ball away. And on the very first play from scrimmage for Nebraska in the second half, they ran the ball something like 80 yards for a touchdown. They started the game with like a 70-yard pass on their first play in the first half and then an 80-some-odd-yard touchdown run in the second half. That's the way the night went. Even while we were trying to leave the stadium, in the process of us leaving the stadium, Nebraska scored two touchdowns. That's that's how it went. Now, I am not typically one who leaves games early, even if they are frustrating, disappointing games. The reason that we pulled the plug was we had an hour drive ahead of us, and we had parked in one of these multi-layer Parking garages probably on the fourth or fifth floor. So if we had waited until the end of the game, it would have taken forever just to get out 
of the parking structure, let alone to the highway and heading back down to Omaha. And so everyone else who was with me, my in-laws, Adam, his cousins, they sort of looked at me at the start of the second half. And I said, all right, I don't want to spend two or three hours getting home after this. Let's go. And out we went. Now, I know there are some hardcore fans, regardless of you know what your team is, who would say this is poor form. You don't leave the game early. You know what if you leave early and then you miss a crazy comeback? This happened with my dad once. He was at an NFL game and he convinced his buddies to leave, and then they all missed a historic comeback. <laughs> so you know I was wary of that, but I also knew the drive ahead of us, knew what the logistics would look like getting out of there, and also had seen with my two eyes the way the teams had been playing for more than a half, and there was a 0% chance of a comeback for Northwestern. So the decision was made, and and we were actually able to get into the house, turn on the TV, and watch the very end of the game. And, you know, the, the post-game interview with Scott Frost the head coach of Nebraska. Now, Dan, our new engineer, is a big sports fan. He spent years in sports talk radio. Dan, did I violate some sports creed by getting the hell out of Memorial Stadium down 42-7 to in the third quarter? Absolutely not. It's definitely okay at that point. I mean, if you're down by a lot and you're away, it's kind of hard to stay there and take that and, and be with all the fans celebrating, so you did the right thing. Yeah, I mean, and again, if it were a more competitive game and it came down to a heartbreaking loss, it would have really sucked to sit there and then have to go through that whole process of leaving. But the team was not competitive. The game was not competitive. I stand by the decision I would do it again. The question is, would I do the whole trip over again? Would I go all the way to Nebraska knowing that that was the outcome? It's hard to say yes, knowing the outcome. Although, again, I was excited to experience Lincoln for the first time. And it was great to see Adam's family. And his cousins were incredibly kind. KOIL, were, they were just great in hosting me for the show. We had a fabulous dinner out downtown Omaha on Friday night. So we had a great time with the exception of those, what, two and a half hours where I was in the stadium on Saturday night, which was at least ostensibly the purpose of the trip. Now, there was... Some football watching earlier in the day that, of course, got the attention of producer Christine. She did not care about the outcome of any of these games, not the outcome about the Northwestern game, not my own mental well-being having sat through the traumatic experience of one of the worst defensive performances I've ever witnessed in my life. She was intrigued by a photograph that I had posted on Instagram of myself in a hot tub drinking a beer, watching football on a TV that had been wheeled over to the hot tub. This is how we watched some of the early games at Adam's cousin's place. It was a pretty sweet setup. Christine, you seemed almost a little bit envious of this experience. And I'm wondering, could you perhaps develop more of an interest in sports if there were hot tubs and alcohol involved on a regular basis? What I was thinking is it's not really the sports that got me. It was the hot tub, the beer, and the TV outside. I can so sit through a marathon of my housewives, you know, or Golden Girls for hours if that was my setup. 
I'm going to have to talk to Bobby about this because maybe we can work something out. We have a pretty large deck. I know a hot tub could fit out there. Now, does that hot tub, is that all year round, even if it's cold? Yeah, they use it year round. It's huge. It is wow. one of those hot tubs, I guess, that people get where you can actually swim in it, where they have oh. jets, right, that, that's sort of simulating a swimming pool, and you sort of swim in place. It's like a treadmill, but with water. That's the purpose of it, but we used it for the purposes of just sitting around and drinking and watching football. And it was actually nice because there was a little bit of a crisp in the air. Early October, a little chilly outside, warm in the hot tub, had, I believe, a Miller Lite or several Miller's Lite, I believe, if I recall correctly, watching, I think it was Michigan, Wisconsin, that total blowout that Georgia put on Arkansas. We were just watching a couple of the games. My issue, Christine, is Hot tubs, I always enjoy them in theory and for about three to five minutes I enjoy. After three to five minutes, I start getting too hot and I also shrivel up like crazy. My fingers get pruney almost immediately. In fact, I was sitting in the hot tub like a weirdo with my fingers above the water. Right, So the only thing above the water were my shoulders, my neck and head, and then me just sitting there with my fingers in the air because I didn't want them to turn into shriveled up grapes immediately. So I actually would have to leave the hot tub and kind of recover outside, get a little chilly again, let my skin get back to something approaching normal, and then I could go back into the hot tub. I just can't do it for very long, which is why the whole marathon thing – you were just talking about hours of watching TV. That would not fly for me. I, well, oh, I don't normally like to agree with you, but I kind of get that feeling. It's the bath theory also. It sounds great in theory, but then you're just sitting in warm water for a while. And it's like, oh, this isn't as uh, refreshing yes. as, right. as, as you want it to be. As we've discussed, I'm a shower guy for that reason. I just – I. Don't really love baths. I never have. The difference with a hot tub, at least, is you've got the jets, and there's the the sensation that you're not just stewing in your own gross water, even though that's exactly what you're doing. They're just sort of moving it around. That at least gives you a different feeling as opposed to just a stagnant bath sitting there. So hot tub, definitely preferable. And it was fun, right, having a drink and watching the game. And he engineered it where he said, don't worry, we're not going to have this thing fall into the hot tub and, and electrocute all of us because that was a concern that I did have briefly. Uh, no, it was it was a sweet, sweet setup. It just wasn't one that I could enjoy for long periods of time. Plus, I was getting, as the game approached, I was getting nervous, our game. I always get nervous for the games. And you envision like a worst-case scenario, and then it came to pass, right? You think, how badly could it go? And in the worst possible situation you could dream up, it would look something like the first two and a half quarters looked like in Lincoln, Nebraska, from my perspective, on Saturday night. But walked out of there with my head held high. Can't let the other fan base know that you're down. And part of being a fan is sticking with your team through thick and thin, but not enough thin to wait until the final buzzer at the very end of the game that was already totally out of reach. So if you're one of these purists who says you've got to stay to the bitter end every time, no matter what, you can send me an angry note. You can make your case. I just can't apologize 
for the series of decisions made on Saturday night. I suspect you might have done the same thing in my shoes. And with that, we are out of here for tonight. Back here for the Tuesday edition on The Guy Benson Show. Have a terrific night. We will talk to you then. Good night. And join me, Rachel Campos Duffy. And me, former U.S. Congressman Sean Duffy, as we share our perspective on the discussions happening at kitchen tables across America. Download from the kitchen table to Duffy's at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you download podcasts. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.